The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Breaking New Ground in RCC Management, Expert Guidance on Leveraging Therapeutic Strategies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash FFQ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We still have some people filtering in uh, today, and I'm really excited to see a, a big audience here on the first night of Asco GU. I've got two terrific panelists. We've actually done this together before, me, uh, Dr. Tian Zhang, Uh, from UT Southwestern, Dave McDermott from Beth Israel. Um, but I told the gang that we're going to have to level up a little bit. And that's because we actually have a real star in our audience, Chuck Drake, probably one of the most brilliant immunologists that I know. Um, I usually like to throw out clinical zingers, um, but maybe he'll do us a favor and throw out some immunology zingers uh, tonight too. So <laughs> we're counting on you for that, Chuck. Uh, and we have a couple of different goals for today. We really want to re focus on emerging therapies for renal cell carcinoma, discuss how to potentially personalize treatments, and also go over adverse event management. I think we'll have ample time to cover all of those topics. So we're going to actually keep referring back to this case, so keep some of these details in mind. This is actually a case that Tian put together, 67-year-old gentleman who presented initially with a 9-centimeter left-sided renal mass. The patient ultimately underwent surgery, showing a pathologic T3 lesion. You can see the histology there, clear cell with some sarcomatoid features, no rhabdoid features. The patient recuperated well at that point in time, no adjuvant therapy really available or considered. After about two years, you start seeing some enlarging nodules in the lungs, some bone lesions emerging at L4. This patient would be characterized based on several parameters shown below as being intermediate risk, hemoglobin of 9.5, calcium elevated at 12.3. And so again, we're going to come back to this case in just a moment, but I'm going to actually hand it off to Dr. McDermott to walk us through frontline dual immunotherapy. Thanks, Monty, and thanks to the organizers for inviting us here tonight. I'm glad to be with all of you. Um, I'm also glad to be able to talk about the right answer to the question of what you would do for this patient. Tian designed the, the case perfectly to give me at least a leg to stand on. So uh, I'm here to talk about uh, dual immuno-immunotherapy combinations. Um, and uh, before I start, I just want to talk a little bit about where, how we got here as far as IO therapy with immune checkpoint blockade. In, a, in large part, the story of CTLA-4 blockade actually started in melanoma, uh, which as a single agent was one of the few places where CTLA-4 blockade actually had some significant activity and led to its early FDA approval. And at some level, everything we've done since then was in some ways trying to build on the success of CTLA-4. Um, and in some ways, that was a good idea. And in some ways, that made things more difficult. Um, you know, we went down a, you know, a few directions that weren't quite so promising, in part because the original goal was to try to make CTLA-4 blockade more active. So here is the design of the so-called Checkmate 214 study. It was designed, at least in part, to take the exciting melanoma data that looked at CTLA-4 um, with ipilimumab and PD-1 blockade with nivolumab and bring it to other diseases like kidney cancer. There had been a long history of things that worked in melanoma, potentially working uh, for kidney cancer, particularly in the IO space. So that was the idea. You see here the eligibility criteria. These eligibility criteria fit this case pretty well. Clear cell patient has already had surgery, has a good uh, performance status, has an IMDC risk that puts them at intermediate risk. 
by those criteria, and you see the randomization of nevo-ipi in the standard format versus sunitinib, one of the important things about this trial is if you didn't get four doses of nevo-ipi, you couldn't go on to maintenance therapy with nivolumab. Right now in clinical practice, most of us will give maintenance even if we can't give four doses, but the fact that we couldn't give four doses may have had some impact on the results of this trial. But it was pretty standard design, one that you'll see with some of these future uh, trials that Tian will talk about. So here are the results for the most important endpoint, not the only uh, primary endpoint, but probably the most important, which is overall survival. And you clear, see a clear improvement in overall survival, not just for the primary analysis group, which was intermediate and poor risk, but for the intent to treat analysis as well. Uh, favorable risk patients were also enrolled in this trial. That enrollment was capped. At a certain level, you see here about 250 patients. Um, and early on, the uh, survival uh, looked more favorable for the sunitinib group and favorable risk. But you can see as these curves have matured, um, nevo-ipi is, uh, is looking better as we get closer to five years for survival. And that's one of the important parts about this story and, and most immunotherapy stories is the data, if you have an active regimen, the data actually gets better with time. Um, those longer endpoints, like long-term overall survival here, and we'll talk about PFS in a second, actually are like a fine wine. They get better uh, with time. But one of the issues with immune therapy is the, the benefits can be durable, which is great, meaning they can often last after you stop treatment, but so can the toxicity. Um, so we wanted to measure both of those things um, from the start of treatment. So we actually developed this uh, new endpoint we call treatment-free survival, um, which is a way of sort of measuring both the good and the bad of immune therapy over time uh, and breaking down survival into a number of different categories. So here you're looking at that same survival curve that I just showed. And it's if you look at the purple area, that's the time patients are alive on therapy, so in this case on ipinevo. In blue is the time they're alive and not on therapy, so-called treatment-free survival. And then in gray, they're alive but on subsequent uh, treatment. Um, and those hatched areas are the times that they're alive in those categories and having side effects. And one important aspect of this is the side effects can continue even when uh, treatment is given to, to improve them. So what did we see when we looked at treatment-free survival? This is in the intermediate and poor-risk group. At 60 months, you see not just improved overall survival for the uh, nevo-ipi cohort compared to sunitinib, but twice as much treatment-free survival. So, it, it, so from the start of treatment, um, you are twice as likely to be alive off drug if you started with um, nevo-ipi on this study. And, and that sort of gets at one of the potential strengths of this analysis is it, in, it doesn't focus just on the winners. It doesn't focus just on the positive, And it starts from the start of treatment so that you can sit down and use this talking to a patient and say, well, with nevo-ipi, you're more likely to have side effects, but you're twice as likely to be alive off drug. And for some of those pa some patients, that's a risk they're willing to take. Others, not so much. So it adds information we think can be useful in clinical decision-making. 
looking at progression-free survival, here's what we saw across the, uh, the different groups. And this is another interesting part of this story um, at the five-year point, is the PFS curves for some of these subgroups seem to have flattened out towards the tail, meaning patients have yet to progress, almost a third of patients in the case of the intermediate and poor risk group up to five years. And some of these patients have yet to progress and are off um, treatment. Um, as well. So that sort of sets a bar for, to compare potentially um, in the future of can we improve on that? Can we build on Nevo-IPI um, in hopes of improving both overall survival and progression-free survival? Um, when looking at response rate with five-year so, five data, the response rates, as you'll notice after uh, Dr. Zhang talks, are not as high with Nevo-IPI as they are with the VEGF-PD-1 combinations. You see them here around 30% for the intent-to-treat group, um, over 40% for the intermediate and poor-risk patients, which is an exciting feature of this IO story, is some of these drugs work better in some of our worst uh, prognosis patients with some of the most aggressive tumors. And also we're seeing complete responses here, 12% uh, in the entire uh, population. But probably more importantly, you see the duration of response, which has not been reached for several of these categories. So if you're fortunate enough to have a deep response, often those translate uh, to several years uh, later, which is obviously something our patients are, um, you are certainly looking for. So we, we talked about why I got to give the talk on the right answer for this trial of what you would do. It comes down to this slide right here. Um, Tian was nice enough to include sarcomatoid features, if you remember, in that case. Um, and, and right now, despite lots of effort, probably the best biomarker that predicts for outcome with PD-1-based therapy, and certainly for Nevo-IPI, is sarcomatoid features in your tumor. Um, Prior to this era of immune checkpoint blockade, those patients with sarcomatoid features did universally poorly. Number one, they, they had very short survival. They often responded less well to VEGF blockade strategies. So when we saw data like this, we were shocked. But you see this story in other tumor types as well. These aggressive tumors often generate an immune response from the patient, so they have immune cells surrounding them, but they can't kill the tumor unless you can block PD-1 or PDL one And when you do, you see high response rates, so 60% in this subset analysis, high CR rates, over 20%, and that tail on the curve for a very aggressive um, disease. Um, so not every patient benefiting, clearly we need to do better, but if you have a patient with sarcomatoid features, they almost certainly need to get PD-1-based therapy, and I would argue probably Nevo-IPI as well. Um, as I mentioned a couple of times, this is not all about efficacy. The, the, the downside of immune therapy is toxicity, and certainly when you add CTLA-4 to PD-1, you increase the side effects, you probably double the likelihood of getting severe side effects. And these side effects have variable timing, as shown on this slide. So base, here are some of the common side effects and when they tend to happen. Um, you know, unfortunately, these are not absolute guidelines. They give you a sense, though, of a few important things when you're educating your patient. For example, the side effects don't always happen with the first dose. Sometimes it takes two or three doses to happen. Patients absolutely need to tell you 
when they're having new side effects, and if they don't, they can get into big trouble. So for example, if they have diarrhea and don't call about it because they assume it's gonna resolve on its own, they can get into significant trouble. The opposite is also true, which is if you have immediate interaction for some of these side effects, you can dramatically improve side effects. In the early days, maybe 10 years ago, when these agents were first being developed, we were very hesitant to give immune suppression to patients having severe side effects because we were afraid we were going to shut off the anti-tumor response, much like you see in, for example, with aloe bone marrow transplant for patients, for example, with AML. If you suppress those patients who are having graft-versus-host disease, they're more likely to recur. That doesn't seem to be the case with immune checkpoint blockade. Um, so early intervention is, is critically important. Um, one of the interesting things, though, about the side effects is, unlike, say, chemotherapy, where side effects can be cumulative, there are intense side effects, particularly in the first three to six months, but it's less common for new side effects to develop as you get from six months to nine months or nine months to 18 months. That doesn't mean you can't see those side effects, because you certainly can, and you need to be on the lookout for them. But in general, patients don't mind coming in for their second year of treatment um, in the same way they might for the second year of taxol, for example, because the, the side effects are not building. They, they, whatever they have, they're usually living with that constellation of side effects, often uh, pretty well managed. Um, but if not well managed, you know, there are obviously patients who have died from immune checkpoint blockade toxicity. So at least in part because of the way the regimen was given on this study, and at least in part because maintenance PD-1 is relatively um, less difficult to take, when you look at quality of life, over time it seems to improve on Nevo-Ipi. There are certainly some patients on the Nevo-Ipi regimen here that aren't on drug at all, or if they're on therapy, they're only on, um, are, are on Nevo. So that led to improvements in time, um, over time with quality of life that we've seen in a couple of other studies. Uh, and I'd just like to finish up with this last um, sort of concept that's been looked at in several studies, uh, um, both, both, the, both the omnivore study in the US and the Titan trial that was done in Germany, and here the HCRN study, which is trying to dial out the side effects of CTLA-4 by looking at single-agent nivolumab in patients like this who have not had prior treatment. And this is a trial that was led by Dr. Atkins and will be updated on Saturday with some new data on treatment-free survival. Patients on this study started on single-agent PD-1. If they had an inadequate response, ipilimumab was added in hopes of sparing patients um, ipilimumab if they didn't need it. And what did they see? Well, they saw some encouraging efficacy results with single-agent Nevo in this trial but probably fewer complete responses than if you had given both drugs up front. Obviously, this is not a randomized study. Similar results were seen in the Titan trial and the omnivore study. And what Dr. Atkins is going to talk about on Saturday is how is treatment-free survival impacted by this approach. Um, and he's got some interesting slides to show, one of which is what happens to treatment-free survival at the two-year point. Because um, what happened on this study, unlike some others, is that two years, all immune therapy was stopped. And what do you see there? Well, you see significant improvement in treatment-free survival because there's nothing better for that condition to create treatment-free survival than stopping uh, therapy. And in some of our patients with kidney cancer, they can actually stop, particularly if they're in response to treatment. So this is, uh, we're back 
to the case. I don't think I need to talk about this, but I have the right answer because of the sarcomatoid features. That's all I'm going to say. Terrific, Dave. That was outstanding. Thank you. Um, so uh, as I like to do in these sessions, I love to throw a couple of zingers out there, you know, following our, our discussions of these various topics. So, you know, and maybe I'll pose this first one to you, Tian. Let's change the scenario a little bit here and assume that this was a good risk patient. So let's say that this patient, instead of, you know, progressing within a two-year window, let's extend it out a little bit to maybe five years. Let's say that hemoglobin, calcium, et cetera, was all normal. Would Nevo Ipi still have been the right answer for this patient? Uh, you know, it, it's a great question, you know, and as Dr. McDermott showed us, um, the favorable risk population certainly was included in 214, so it's an option, but I think we have multiple options for favorable risk disease now. And what gets me is um, favorable risk disease seem to be more uh, angiogenically driven. You know, if you look at the clustering effects, um, the transcriptomic data, uh, the favorable risk population is probably more enriched for angiogenically driven tumors. So uh, is it an option? Absolutely. So Ipinevo, um, I think when we were talking about these options, favorable risk disease actually poses a lot of quandaries, right? So we can say, well, we could shoot for a complete response and um, and think about Ipinevo in this front line setting. But we know also favorable risk disease is angiogenically driven. So maybe we should use a VEGFIO combination. So what do you do? <laughs> I, I talk to the patient about all the treatment options, and then I help them guide and do a shared decision-making. Okay. I've given Ipinevo for favorable risk disease, but I've certainly also given VEGFIO combinations. Yeah, good answer. And I've, I've talked to patients about it. I ran into one scenario of a favorable risk patient who really you know, wanted to sort of take on Evo Ipi and develop this really complicated autoimmune cerebritis. You know, it was really quite challenging. Um, you know, having said that, you know, I, in this scenario, if it were good risk, I'd tend to favor TKIO. You know, I'd probably go with a regimen like Cabo-Nevo, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But what about you, Dave? Good risk patient. Well, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but I want to hear you say it. Oh, sure. Um, well, we probably would give this patient a, ch a chance at just immune checkpoint blockade alone, either single agent or combo. Um, that answer is easier to give now than it was, say, two or three years ago. Uh, two or three years ago, when we had the early data from Cabonevo and Axipembro, clear improvements with the early endpoints. There's nothing that beats those regimens on response rate and median progression-free survival. But over time, if you just look at overall survival for, say, Len Pembro or some of the other regimens, right now the hazard ratio for overall survival, as you guys know, is over 1% in favorable risk, which I don't quite understand. I would love to understand that, but it's hard to argue that it improves overall survival in your case compared to just sunitinib alone, you know, or TKI alone. So some, it's not wrong to say you could just give a TKI to those patients, although I don't think any of us are really doing that, but we, we, it's, it's just hard to understand why we haven't improved survival in those patients. And now, with five years of follow-up, as I showed, some of the Ipinevo data looks better in favorable risk. You know, not necessarily dramatically better than sunitinib, but hazard ratio for OS is less than one, barely. And the PFS curves are starting to cross a little bit. So I think there's more evidence for Ipinevo, even though it's not, um, you know, indicated or approved in that setting. 
So I think my my argument's a little easier than it was a couple of years ago. Okay, interesting. I mean, great, great, great defense. You know, one one thing that's coming up more often nowadays, you know, is it, the follow up analyses of the Nevo Ippi trial, and we see this tail on the curve, as you, you know, pointed out, with uh, about thirty one percent of patients on that graphic. You know, out at uh, the five year mark. But question for you, Dave. Um, I've heard Tom Powell's on Twitter. I love Twitter. <laughs> You knew I was going to bring this up. Great. He, he talks about, you know, sort of that, that uh, number at risk. You know, if you follow the, the bottom portion of the curve there, you, know, you see those numbers dwindling to about 10% of the original study population, you know, as you get out to those more distal longitudinal endpoints. Well, what do you think about that? Are we really seeing 30% of patients who remain progression-free at five years, or is it really a, a smaller fraction of those individuals who originally enrolled? Well, here's what I would say. I think most um, trials that we do and most companies that do those trials and the FDA focus on the early outcomes, and we don't spend nearly as much time on those on patients in long-term survival. We often lose those patients to follow up because particularly if they're off treatment, they don't come back to clinic or they don't need to or, you know, so we, as a field, we need to, now that we're seeing long-term survival, which in some, you know, we never thought we would have a five-year median, you know, for our patients. Now that we're seeing that, we have to follow these patients better. So if Tom is saying, I feel, or you as Tom are saying, maybe we're not 100% sure what's happening to those patients, I would say, sure. We're, we need to do a better job. We need to be sure how many of those patients have truly progressed versus not, how many are lost to follow up. We need more clarity. That said, I think all of these trials have the same issues. It's not like the, the Nevo Ippi experience was done differently than Axie Pembro, for example, and the curves look different. So he, on his trial, has saggy curves. We have, you know, a flat curve. So it, it's not a perfect analysis. We need more data. We need to push. If I could add a point to... Tom's uh, in the back of the room there. Yeah, right. Dr. McDermott's <laughs> point. You know, in the late, um, way back when we used to give high-dose IL-2, there was a patient population that did really well 10 years out, no disease. And they tended to be more favorable risk patients, right? Like they were asymptomatic, lung meds only, and uh, tended to have... Uh, not a lot of IMDC risk factors, the ones that did really well. So, um, it, you know, they seem to be some, a, a population seems to be immunogenic. It's just hard to figure out who those patients are. So what right. do you think, Tien, when you're sitting down with the patient and you're discussing the data here, is it fair for us to sort of bring up these five-year outcomes with nevo or and suggest that there's a third of patients who are still progression-free, or is that curve just too unstable? Uh, I think the population drops out because of censoring events, right? So there's all the loss to follow up or others. Um, but there are patients five years out that are either on single agent Nevo or they're off treatment and they're doing well. So I, I think for these are patient population curves. We cannot, you know, fully predict for that patient, one patient sitting in front of us where they're going to be along the curve. Okay, so those were my softball questions. Now, the hardball questions, okay? <laughs> okay? So, you know, let's take this scenario and let's make it more contemporary. Let's say this patient had pathologic T3 disease. They actually got adjuvant pembrolizumab in this scenario. And let's make this a little bit more interesting. Two years out, sure, you could make a case to, you know, consider that patient IO naive potentially. Let's say they actually progressed one year out from their adjuvant pembrolizumab. Dave, what are you going to do for this patient? Um, well, there's potentially a condition which we'll call PD-1 deficiency. 
for the sake of argument. There's, there are patients, we all have them. I'm writing that they down. They come off for, right, <laughs> we just, just uh, trademarking. <laughs> there are patients we have who come off immune therapy, oftentimes for side effects, who then progress six months later or, you know, 12 months later. I saw someone like this in clinic just this week, who when you reintroduce it, the, both the side effects and the anti-tumor effects sometimes return. So in the, so the argument for giving that Pembro failure more PD-1 is that they progress because they weren't on continuous blockade. Now, how common is that scenario? I don't think we know. We obviously, your, your trial, contact 003, is going to help us figure that out because they're probably, if you go right from Pembro to say the next PD-1, it's probably, the next PD-1 is probably not going to add much. But there are probably patients who need, whose immune response needs chronic PD-1 blockade. So I would re-challenge a patient at one year, but if, at six weeks, you'd move on to just VEGF blockade, probably. Okay. What about UTN? One year. I know that's kind of a tough... One year after they finished. After they finished, yeah. Yeah. I, I would potentially re-challenge, you know, figure out their IMDC criteria, and then, um, depending on that, um, discuss with them either IOIO or IOTKI. So you do either IOIO or TKIIO. What sure. about you, Dave? Well, I think Tian is saying a lot of really good things tonight. Okay. And I haven't disagreed with anything she said. Yeah. And I agree with that. I mean, there's evidence in, in, for example, in HCRN and the Titan trial that adding CTLA-4 helps a small number of patients. So I think Nevo-IP is a right answer. Nevo-Cabo is a right answer in that setting, too. Ultimately, you, we end up trying a lot of these things. Um, and we don't have good head-to-head -head comparisons. We don't have good second-line data. So I think people are going to give that patient a shot as long as they, I think so. I think there's evidence to support it. Your trial may end this, but we'll have to wait. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. But I think we're going to detail Contact 3 a little later on tonight. I, I promise I won't do this often, Chuck, but I'm just going to pick on you for one second. I had, I had a question for you, in fact, <laughs> you know, in this adjuvant space, right? How, how long do you think the effect of checkpoint inhibitors really lingers? I mean, any, any sense of that? In broad terms, we have a microphone for you. Sure. I mean, the, uh, the original studies looked at the on-cell half-life of anti-PD-1 with Nevo, and it's actually quite long. It's between, you know, three and six months, right? So during that first, whatever, six months of you, quote-unquote, stop the drug, you didn't really stop the drug. There was plenty of drug, actually. And then it's in that next six months that the patient truly was PD-1 deficient or, or, or drug-free. And probably the same for other um, PD-1s as well. It's a really strange immunological phenomena I, I think that the answer is I would totally uh, agree with, actually. Well, the only thing is, 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 is you say to yourself, like, look, you know, if they were steady, if they were in response on anti-PD-1, is anti adding anti-PD-1 sufficient, right? Or do you want to go a little bit bigger and add CTLA-4 and a TKI, which I, I think it depends on the, the rate of the pace of progression you're seeing, right? Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, okay. So that's that's affirmation. I think of your responses there. That that's I think very it was helpful. affirmation of Dr. Zhang's response. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I heard. Perfect. Thank you, Chuck. I promise I won't do that uh, too much tonight. I really appreciate the help, though. Um, so we're we're going to keep this case in mind, and we'll continue to do a play on it. And I'm going to start doing a quick overview. Uh, I want to leave lots of time here for discussion of IOTKI regimens, which I would 
probably envision as being the right answer in this scenario. So uh, this is a schema here that really sort of summarizes all of the contemporary regimens with TKI plus IO that we use in the clinic. You see Axipembro there, Cabonevo, Lenpembro. Uh, and just a couple of updates for you all. Uh, this is the data from Keynote 426, the pivotal trial of Axipembro. As we go out to a median follow-up of 43 months, we see here a response rate of 60% uh, with Axipembro versus 40% with, uh, with, uh, with sinitinib in this case. Uh, this is the longest follow-up of any of our TKI-IO experiences. Uh, if you look at the hazard ratio here for progression-free survival on the right-hand side, it sits at around uh, 0.68. Uh, and if you look to the left for overall survival, you're going to see all of these hazard ratios kind of coalesce at around 0.7. So the hazard ratio for Axipembra sits at 0.73. This is uh, the regimen that I tend to favor in the clinic. And in principle, I'll tell you, you know, the strategy here was so different than the other trials. With Axipembro, we use that conventional 5 milligram twice daily dosing in the upfront setting as we used to use in the refractory setting. With cabozantinib, we've all gotten accustomed to using 60 milligrams as our dose in the second line setting and beyond. Here in Checkmate 90R, I, I think we, we took a fairly big risk in using a lower dose at 40 milligrams in combination with Nevo. And you can see here still a, a fairly profound benefit in terms of progression-free survival, hazard ratio 0.56, uh, and again, that overall survival hazard ratio hanging out at 0.7. Now, I want you uh, to take a peek at this data coming out at this meeting on Saturday. Saturday is the big kidney cancer day. Um, and you'll see a couple of updates, uh, which really suggest that the data from Checkmate 90R really holds up. You can see here that, again, we confirm this hazard ratio uh, of 0.58 in terms of progression-free survival, still about a doubling in terms of PFS with Cabonevo over Sinitinib. And what's interesting here is you actually see that median overall survival value for the Cabonevo doublet extend out quite substantially to 49 months, uh, hazard ratio sitting at 0.7. No new safety signals. Uh, the second abstract here presented by Tony on Saturday is an important one, uh, and this is really an effort uh, on uh, the part of our colleagues uh, in industry to really characterize the biomarkers associated with this trial. I think that's of critical importance. One of the things that we find is that some of the biomarkers we validated with anti-PDL1 and anti-VEGF, a lot of your, your fantastic work, Dave, in the past, we weren't able to really sort of reestablish in the context of Cabonevo. Um, but uh, looking forward to seeing those data sets emerge shortly. I really like uh, this particular abstract here, which is actually coming from ASCO last year. Uh, this characterizes the depth of response as it relates to the progression-free survival. And you can see here that patients, and this is, seems somewhat intuitive, but it for some reason doesn't bear out, for instance, with, you know, sinitinib alone, uh, as you can see in the progression-free survival curves in orange. Um, if you look at depth of response, and if you characterize patients as either a really deep responder or PR1 with 80 to 100% reduction in their tumors, you can see that these patients are real standouts when it comes to progression-free survival. Uh, progression-free survival, a bit more modest, uh, but still good in those patients who have a 60 to 80% reduction and a bit less still amongst those patients who have a 30 to 60% reduction. So, you know, in counseling patients, you can really look at that depth of response to guide perhaps the duration that they'll be on therapy. This is the data from the CLEAR trial looking at lenvatinib with pembrolizumab. This was a three-arm study. Uh, we're purposely here not focusing in on the arm containing lenvatinib with everolimus. This is a comparison of the control arm of sinitinib against lenpembro. 
You know, and, and uh, you know, I'll certainly ask for your input on this, uh, Dave and Tian. But you know, what's striking to me here is that you see this really, you know, what I would say high watermark for progression-free survival with a PFS of 23 months uh, versus nine months with Snitnib, but really doesn't translate to any better improvement in overall survival here. Any any thoughts on that, Dave, Tian? Why why we might be seeing that phenomenon? Personally, I think it's still early days for the overall survival curves. Um, so, uh, I mean, the blue curve seems to be separated out from the, the orange curve on the OS curve. So I just wait for more events. Um, I, I think to your point of unstable ends, the, the ends here are pretty unstable. Fair enough. Dave, any thoughts on this? You know, I, I would agree. I, the one thing that's less clear here is why, particularly in the good risk patients, we're not seeing more dramatic improvements in overall survival, because you would think, as I think Tian mentioned earlier, that based on what we understand about IMDC criteria, that's the VEGF high angiogenesis signature high cohort, or at least more predominantly. So you would think you'd see better activity there, and we don't yet as it relates to see, relates to overall survival, and we can only sort of hypothesize about why that might be. But hopefully that will improve with more follow-up. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I stewed a lot over these curves. I'm sure both of you have as well. Um, you know, for me, what it all boils down to is initially that issue around dosing with lenvatinib. You know, we start with a higher dose actually in the frontline setting, 20 milligrams than what we typically use as salvage. 18 milligrams and, and below. Um, and, you know, I, th I think that really sort of bears out when you look at the quality of life data here. You know, really some parallels here looking at Lenpembro versus Sinitinib in terms of quality of life, despite these you know, significant improvements in progression-free survival. Again, one of the reasons that I sort of lean on cabozantinib nivolumab in the frontline setting is the data that you see here, um, which really seem to suggest that there's a, a substantial quality of life improvement with cabonevo over Sinitinib in this scenario. Um, so we're going to get back to this panel discussion over here. So, you know, Tian, in a scenario like this, if you had to choose amongst one of those TKIO regimens, and I'll force your hand here, we won't consider Nevo Ipi for a moment, which one would you probably pick for this patient? Again, recalling patient progressed after two years, intermediate risk disease with bone and lung metastases. Right. I, I think symptomatic disease is one where I do choose um, a VEGFIO combination. So I, th I certainly think um, that we sh could, right, um, for early disease control, relief of symptoms, um, be choosing a VEGFIO combination. Uh, I, I give any of them. Uh, so Axipembro for its short half-life for Axi, um, Lenpembro um, for really great early disease control, and then also Cabonevo if I'm thinking this patient may or may not see a second-line agent. But if you um, had to pick one, which one would it be? You're really forcing my hand. Um, Probably, if I had to choose one, um, probably I would guide them toward Lynn Pembro. And we currently actually have the um, LightSpark 012 trial open, so uh, it's a perfect setup to say, and we have a triplet trial open that you may be a really good candidate for, and this is the control cohort. Um, so I like it for that reason. Got it. So based on some of those study-related considerations, what about you, Dave? If, if I forced your hand and I said, can't give Nevo Ipi in this setting, what would you suggest? You know, I agree with what Tian said for symptomatic patients, particularly very symptomatic patients. There's nothing that gets control over the disease faster than IOTKI. I think uh, Nevocabo is a reasonable approach in this patient, in part maybe because of the bone lesions. I, I wouldn't say that we know that Cabo works 
better for bone lesions. There's a lot of debate about those, you know, sort of um, forest plots that you see, but it certainly doesn't work less well in those patients. And that's a place where we often have, you know, challenges in the clinic about managing patients' bone metastases. So anything that might give us more control in that setting is critically important because usually patients who have developed one or two bone lesions are on their way to getting others. So they need an aggressive, multidisciplinary approach, including systemic therapy. So, Tian, just as you're about to have a conversation with this patient about what systemic regimen to go on, your pathologist runs in the room and says, wait a minute, I made a mistake. Original pathology is papillary renal cell carcinoma. That's a pretty big mistake. That's a big mistake. <laughs> That's a big mistake. <laughs> well, what do you do there? And sometimes we see these patients, you know, with external pathology, right, where we ask for pathology review. Uh, but uh, my pathologists don't run in the room very often. Um, <laughs> maybe they do at City of Hope. Um, but, uh, you know, I think if papillary, the best evidence, of course, is your trial, PepMed, um, and thinking about CABO versus sunitinib in the upfront setting. Uh, so certainly CABO's anti uh, monotherapy is our standard right now. Uh, and then PEPMED 2 just opened. So it's uh, randomizing patients to CABO alone versus cabozantinib with atezolizumab. So I think those are really good options. Yeah. But, you know, actually, that wasn't the pathology attending. It was actually the fellow that ran into the room. And so the pathology attending runs in, Dave, and says to you, wait a minute, wait a minute, this was not papillary, it was chromophobe. Okay. So what would you do for this patient if it's recurrent chromophobe? Well, I think as we all know, there's not a great standard of care for chromophobe patients, unfortunately. Um, there are some clues at what might work. So in the Keynote 427 study, for example, we looked at all comers, non-clear cell kidney cancer. There was a small cohort of chromophobe patients on that trial, and there was, I think, about a 10% response rate with single-agent PD-1. So we think that PD-1 might add for a small subset of patients, so that it makes sense to explore that. The other sort of small slice of data that uh, that I use to help guide therapy came from, I think it was Tom Hudson's trial of uh, lymvatinib everolimus, where he looked at a cohort, maybe about 40 or 50 people with chromophobe, which is an enormous trial by our standards for that group. Or I don't, I'm not sure it was that big, but the point is the response rate was north of 40%. So that is another combination that we use. Um, but ultimately, we need to understand much better what's driving these tumors because we're just throwing therapies that we have available for clear cell against a tumor that's very different genetically, biologically. Um, you know, we need to do much more research there. And it's great that the folks at KCCure and others are supporting that research more. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the few granting opportunities for chromophobe comes from KC Cure, which is just terrific. Um, okay, so I'm going to keep moving on here. So this is actually a little lesson we're going to shift over to in terms of toxicity management. And uh, for those who don't know about this, TN actually hosts a terrific podcast, uh, which is called Checkpoint. Checkpoint Now, MD. Checkpoint yes. Now MD. Yeah, it's, it's on Apple, iTunes, and right, and a couple of other. Yeah, Spotify. Uh, so, so definitely, you if you're like on your to phone your right now, go ahead and download it. She didn't pay me to say that, by the way, but it's thank you, a Monty. Terrific <laughs> podcast. Um, but this patient actually presents at week 12 for checkpoint inhibitor dosing. You started them on a TKI IO regimen, any one of the three that we discussed, and uh, they note the sudden onset of three to four days of watery diarrhea about four times a day. 
no fevers, uh, mild crampy abdominal pain, but the patient just appears to be generally unwell. You check liver function tests, everything's normal, just mild elevation of the BUN creatinine, presumably from dehydration. Um, what, would you, what would you do in this scenario, Tian, to manage this patient? Yeah, I think if, uh, you know, colitis and diarrhea is the one where, um, they're overlapping toxicities of, uh, TKI and immunotherapy. So the easy thing is to hold the TKI, uh, hopefully as a short acting one, um, and give it a couple of days, see if the diarrhea improves. Um, I have a very low threshold to start steroids as well. Um, and, uh, and uh, if it is immune mediated, then hopefully the steroids will calm it down. And what dose of steroid do you typically start at? Yeah, it depends on how severe it is. If it is um, you know, patients um, having diarrhea 10 or more times a day, um, uh, I'm starting at one milligram per kilogram of prednisone um, daily dosing. Uh, if they're you know, really dehydrated and is showing up and uh, having you know, maybe acute kidney injury from it, uh, or then they're in their hospital um, in their presentation, um, I'm often starting solumedrol or, um, at two milligram per kilogram dosing. Um, and, you know, in the very um, refractory setting, also thinking about um, disease-modifying agents like vedolizumab. Very good. So, so, Dave, this patient ends up coming into the hospital, has progressive watery stools 10 times a day. You put them on uh, solumedrol, one mg per kg, BID, still really not resolving. Get GI on board. They do a biopsy, confirms immune-related colitis, other infectious workup is negative. What are you thinking about treating with in that setting? Tiana mentioned vetalizumab. Any other thoughts? Right. So what I, what I, that's how sort of we used to manage it. Nowadays, if someone comes in with colitis, I'm sort of treating first, biopsying second, because if, particularly at our institution, if you wait for the scope, if you wait for the biopsy result, it's often the patient's sort of cycling down the drain, which is not good. So it's not easy to get some of these drugs inpatient at our institution, but we use infliximab, for example. We would ramp the dose of the Medrol up, um, you know, maybe to two milligrams per kilo. Um, so you, it, it's really it's close to an, you can to have an emergency situation. So you really need to act fast and sort of ask questions later. Because if you wait for all the data, it's all it can be too late to get control over it. And then patients will spend weeks on steroids and with long tapers. But this is, gets to the point about the TKI in question. One advantage of exitinib Pembro is if you're trying to figure it out, it's the Axie or the Pembro. Well, the Axie goes away in the 24 hours, for example, where these other agents don't. So newer agents with shorter half-lives will make good sense. And I know the um, that has a shorter half-life, and that would be good for our patients to help manage this kind of scenario. Yeah, XL092. Is that the real name? Yeah. I like Daughter of Cabo. Daughter of Cabo. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to play around with the scenario a little bit, and I, I'm actually going to get your advice on something that I'm contending with right now in the clinic. So, you know, let's change the scenario here. As opposed to GI re- or gut-related toxicity, Let's envision that this is a patient who you see in the clinic, AST and ALT are up in the 300 range, right? You know, you stop TKI therapy, continues to rise, right? So you get the patient started on steroids, AST and ALT are still on the rise. What sorts of therapies are you thinking about in that particular setting? Maybe after you've exhausted, you know, inpatient use of solumedrol. Tian, maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, our um, uh, hepatology uh, experts uh, like 
uh, other immune suppressives like mycophenolate mofetil. So Celsept is a really nice one um, for LFT abnormalities. Um, and it seems to work pretty well. So um, we tend to get it started even before we ramp up the steroids. You know, if it's a week or two and the LFTs are not uh, decreasing, um, we'll add uh, Celsept on. Very good. What about you, Dave? Any tips in that setting? You know, Tien keeps giving all the right answers. So, <laughs> but what I would say, the one advantage of hepatitis over colitis is the absorption is not an issue of the drugs. Whereas with colitis, part of the reason you need to admit them is because if they have bad colitis, they're not absorbing the oral therapies. So you need to... Hepatitis is, can be measured, monitored more, as managed more as an outpatient, I think, in my Very experience. Very well said. Very, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we probably don't have time to go through all of these scenarios here. But as David pointed out, Tien, you gave a perfect answer. Uh, holding the TKI seems to be sort of the strategy to discern toxicities when you're on a TKI-IO combination. Um, this, these are, are a list of useful guides, ASCO, NCCN, SITSI, ESMO. I actually tend to use the ESMO guidelines more than any of the others. I find it to be maybe the most prescriptive and the easiest to use in this setting. Um, and I, I love to sort of distribute that amongst the fellows. That's a really good one. Uh, this is some fantastic data, courtesy of Dina Battle and KC Cure. Uh, and this uh, provides the results of a patient-directed survey on the use of uh, dose reductions, which is a really critical strategy in this particular setting. Um, you know, I wanted to highlight some of the data here. Uh, this really uh, inquires amongst patients whether or not dose reductions are being frequently utilized in the clinic. As you can see from the first row of pie charts there, about two-thirds of patients are actually uh, having some discussions around dose reductions with their physicians. Um, and most seem to suggest that these dose reductions are quite helpful. Um, I like these patient perceptions at the very uh, bottom here, uh, patient views related to oral dose reductions. As you can see here that yeah, it, many patients uh, did have some relief with dose reduction, uh, but there are concerns that emerge around worrying or reducing efficacy. But what do you tell patients in that setting, TN, when they say to you, gosh, I really don't want to reduce my dose of Cabo or Lenva or uh, what have you because I don't want to compromise the efficacy? Right. Uh, you know, we have that quite often. I think it's a certainly a real-life scenario where um, patients are afraid to go down on the doses because they're afraid that they're not going to achieve the same efficacy, right, of the treatment. Um, and, you know, I, I, I try to counsel them that, you know, in many of the trials, the doses were adjusted based on toxicities, that sometimes patients have differing clearance, and so uh, the pharmacokinetics uh, may differ, and so their exposure actually over time it may be higher than others, and so um, adjusting for toxicity certainly is indicated, um, and it's really the dose um, density of time on treatment overall uh, that uh, I think really matters in the long run uh, rather than the actual dose that they're on. So I would certainly um, uh, titrate their doses to um, manageable toxicities. Um, certainly someone who has florid mucositis, not eating and losing weight, really should have their dose adjusted um, and, uh, and to a reasonable um, uh, dose where toxicity can be managed. That, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're going to shift gears here away from toxicity uh, and actually talk about uh, triplet therapy in the context of renal cell carcinoma. Um, we're going to spend just a couple minutes talking about the data from Cosmic 313, which I, I give a lot of credit to as being you know, really the first trial of its kind to explore triplets with a contemporary control arm of Nevo-IPI. So this was a, a randomized study 
looking at nevo-ipi with or without cabozantinib in previously untreated patients. Um, you can see here, and this is key to keep in mind, the study actually met its primary endpoint of progression-free survival. Uh, you can see that in the curve in the top left here, hazard ratio for uh, progression-free survival was 0.73. Um, you know, this ran a little bit counter to my expectations. My suspicion was that we were really going to see benefit with this triplet therapy regimen amongst those patients with really aggressive disease, porous disease. Um, and what really sort of bears out on the right-hand side is something that runs counter to that notion. You can actually see that the patients with porous disease didn't seem to really derive as much benefit with the triplet. Um, you look at that intermediate risk population there, and you can actually see that that's, that's really where I think this PFS advantage is derived from. Um, the OS analysis is still pending. We haven't seen any overall survival data. We're actually going to see some further data based on IMDC risk uh, from Tom, uh, who we cited a couple of times here tonight on Saturday. So I'm, I'm really eager to see what that shows. Um, toxicity. We don't really outline a lot of the toxicity here, Dave, but I know you're well familiar with the data. Give me your sense of toxicities associated with this triplet. Um, well, I think when you add IPI to any regimen, you add IO toxicity. You know, I think one of the issues here was, are you going to amplify any TKI-related toxicity? We've certainly seen that with other combinations. So one of the earliest ones, as you know, was pizopanib pembrolizumab. That was one of the first uh, VEGF-TKI combinations. There was a lot of excitement about that, and that didn't get into randomized trials in part because of the hepatotoxicity. We seem to be amplifying the hepatotoxicity that you sometimes see with pizopanib. That is at least in part probably what's going on here. Normally, you don't see that much uh you know, critically important toxicity with cabozantinib alone on the liver that is dose limiting, but it certainly was here. And that may or may not have had an impact on some of the outcomes. Um, also, the, once you get into that toxicity, as we talked about, you're often more likely to be on immune suppression that may have had some impact. I think we're going to learn a little bit on Saturday about, you know, whether those things made a difference or not. But part of the other thing you're seeing here, I think, is in some ways is nevo-ipi doing better than people expected. Um, in a population of patients, it's a little more aggressive than checkmate or has a little more disease than checkmate 214 because there's far more patients on this study, as you know, who went on with their primary and tumors in place. I think one explanation for why nevo-ipi is doing better here is because unlike 214, if you didn't get four doses of the combo here, you could still get nevo, whereas on T214, if you didn't get four doses of the combo, you couldn't. And that may explain some of this. You know, it's the control arm overperforming in some ways. Interesting. So, so you know, let's make the assumption here, Tian, that the FDA is weighted on this data, approves this tomorrow. You're in clinic on Monday, and a patient says to you with intermediate risk disease, I'd like to try this triplet combination, cabo, nevo, ipi. What would you say to them? Uh, I would say it's newly approved. <laughs> um, so I, I think, you know, but we have to be really mindful of the toxicity profile. So the transaminases, the increases in pancre uh, pancreatic enzymes, hypertension, um, all uh, need monitoring and uh, dose titration or discontinuation. Um, and, uh, and, you know, could it be a viable, um, reasonable option? Yes. Now, what we don't see in these curves, though, is uh, the Cabonevo 9ER data that you just presented as well. And so, um, you know, to me, the Cabonevo IPI curve doesn't look too much different than the Cabonevo curve if you were to overlay them. Um, so it's, 
you know, it's hard for me to say you absolutely need the triplet versus a Cabo-Nivo approach um, if we were coming down to that decision. Got it. Dave, what about you? You know, Monday morning, patient says, I just heard about this approval last week. What would you say? Well, the bigger problem is if they've heard this talk, they'll want it before it's FDA approved, <laughs> potentially, which you get. You get very educated patients seeing this before it's approved. I think the question for me is, obviously, this is more difficult than getting Cabo Nevo. It's probably also more difficult for the patient than getting Nevo Ipi. So then the question is, why would you put the patient through something that's more of a challenge for them? And you alluded to one potential reason, which was maybe in more aggressive disease, like the poor-risk patients, throwing everything that's effective against the tumor would be better, but we don't have evidence of that right now. You, you, if we saw higher CR rates than you saw with Nevo Cabo or Nevo Ipi, that also might be a reason to push towards remissions for patients, but we don't see that yet. I mean, we need to see more in this regimen than we've seen so far for it to be, I think, broadly applicable for I, most of us. I completely agree with both of you guys. Yeah, just a lot of, lot of sort of unanswered questions, including OS, which is, you know, sort of a big right. elephant in the room, you know, with, with this particular trial. Um, having said that, you know, we, we do have other triplet therapy trials on the horizon. So TN had actually pointed out LightSpark 012, which looks at this triplet of lenvatinib, pembrolizumab, and belzutifan. We've already discussed Cosmic 313. Pedigree is actually a very interesting and innovative design. And Tian, if you don't mind spelling that out for us as, as the PI of the trial. I also didn't pay you to say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so intermediate poor risk disease, um, and we give Ipinevo for all comers. Um, and then depending on the responses, randomize them to either nivolumab with Cabo or Nevo alone. So building on the 214 approach. Um, so it's a, really a, a sequencing question, and um, you know, it's about 800 enrolled. So we're, we're getting there, but um, you know, hopefully we still are answering relevant questions. And this probe trial just quickly highlight answers another sort of standing question in advanced renal cell carcinoma, which is what to do with cytoreductive nephrectomy. You know, it's, it's still not entirely clear what we ought to do in the context of TKI-IO regimens or Nevo-IPI, for instance. You know, we had data from the cytokine era suggesting a benefit, data from the TKI era suggesting the opposite. Um, so this trial randomized patients to cytoreductive nephrectomy or not in the context of IO-based regimens. Dave, what's the most important trial out of these four? Oh, great. Well, um, no pressure. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I like Tien's trial in the sense that she's also looking at stopping therapy. So th can you stop in deep responses? I think that's an important question. Does HIF add anything? Um, it, it probably does. Uh, I'm not sure that's the place that I would use it in, in a triplet. Um, it's hard to pick which one I'm, you know, I don't know. They're all answering great questions. Yeah, they're all important, but I can't pick one that's more important. Okay. The right answer is TN's trial, most important trial. That's what I'm standing right here, Dave. That's what I started with. I started with that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to transition over to TN to walk us through sequencing therapy in the refractory setting. Tien. Great. Thank you, Monty. Um, all right. So your patient has had frontline therapy, and now what do we do in refractory disease? Uh, I'll start with um, some key phase three trials in refractory kidney cancer here. You see five of these. Um, the first three uh, 
uh, are um, TKI monotherapy treatments. So Axis with Axitinib versus Serafinib, Meteor with Cabozantinib versus Everlimus, and then the most recent one, TiVo3 with Tavaznib versus Serafinib. Um, so all of three uh, have uh, were registrational um, approvals, and so we have all three monotherapies now in the refractory setting. Uh, Checkmate 025, of course, was our first um, PD-1 inhibitor in kidney cancer, um, so we have to give a nod to that. And um, we do have nimbolumab alone in the refractory setting as well. Cantata was interesting. Uh, many of us had high hopes for um, adding a glutaminase inhibitor um, to modify metabolism in refractory kidney cancer. And so this trial tested um, the uh, uh, glutaminase inhibitor teleglenostat with cabozantinib versus cabozantinib alone. And unfortunately, um, did not see an improvement with the combination. So I think cabo as a control cohort was a really high bar to meet. Um, so from here, um, we, we go into Tavosnib for TiVo3. The registrational trial um, for Tavosnib was done now in the immunotherapy era where many of these patients had um, prior immunotherapy combinations and still uh, showed an effect for Tavosnib in the refractory setting. Um, many people will say, well, this was um, based on uh, versus serafinib as a um, control cohort, and we don't give a lot of that, uh, but it is one of the uh, potential options. Um, and you see on the right um, the uh, treatment effects and the adverse events from uh, tavosinib. Certainly hypertension um, is a class effect of VEGF agents as are um, fatigue and some diarrhea. But the diarrhea hand foot syndrome actually looks better when compared against serafinib. All right, so going more into TiVo3, this is the uh, overall survival curve on the right, uh, on the left here, where hazard ratio was improved um, of uh, tavosinib versus serafinib. Um, and then with extended follow-up, you see that hazard ratio is drifting down a little bit um, with actual events occurring. Um, so the most recent update was in May of 2021, where the hazard ratio was 0.89. Um, so this study was uh, hedged on um, more the progression-free survival, but it has also uh, panned out um, with overall survival endpoints. So what about a combination approach? Um, we, a lot of us are asking this question, right? If we know something works in the frontline setting, could we also use it in the refractory setting to add VEGF with immunotherapy agents? So uh, tavosinib was um, uh, combined with nivolumab in a phase one, two study um, in the frontline setting and also beyond. Um, and uh, with uh, the, the last data cutoff was at 19 months and the median progression-free survival uh, was improved. Uh, and, and actually you see the the two um, cohorts are um, previously treated in the blue and treatment naive in the uh, in the purple, uh, but median progression-free survival was uh, about 19 months for treatment naive patients. Um, and if, as we look at TNEVO2, so this is an ongoing trial that's open and accruing um, across uh, the world. Um, and uh, this is a combination of tavosinib with nivolumab and refractory metastatic renal cell carcinoma compared with uh, tavosinib monotherapy. Um, so certainly um, ongoing and accruing um, in, in um, prior one or two lines, so in the second or third line um, therapy for refractory disease. 
Um, I liked um, this study from uh, the Memorial Sloan Kettering Group, um, where they looked at uh, levatinib with pembrolizumab in the refractory setting. Um, this was all patients with metastatic clear cell kidney cancer in the refractory setting. Um, you, on the far right um, on the table here is the um, immune checkpoint inhibitor pretreated population, 104 patients here, um, uh, 58% of whom um, had objective responses. Um, you see no complete response responses, but um, the majority of these uh, patients achieved a partial response. And um, what's interesting is the disease control rate um, was very high. 96 of these patients, um, or 92% of them, uh, achieved disease control, which I think in the refractory patient population is really important. No growth is success um, in that patient population. What about pavozantinib and atezolizumab? Uh, so, Monty, you were very uh, involved in the Cosmic 021 basket trial. Um, the Phase 1B portion did have a cohort of clear cell kidney cancer that showed an impressive objective response rate of 58%. Again, we see really good disease control or better, no growth in their target lesions on this waterfall plot on the left. And now we um, uh, contact 03 is uh, enrolled, um, fully enrolled uh, with uh, tezolizumab and cabozantinib randomized against cabozantinib alone. High bar, as uh, I mentioned with uh, Cantata study, but um, uh, I'm hopeful that um, we'll see results of this soon with a primary endpoint of progression-free survival. Um, so stay tuned. What about HIF-2-alpha inhibition? So we've seen some um, really good um, uh, disease activity of um, belzutifen in uh, the VHL population. Um, how about here in refractory kidney cancer? Um, there was a phase 1-2 study that showed um, belzutifen um, had an objective response rate of about 25% in this refractory patient population with a median progression-free survival of about 14.5 months. You see the waterfall plot here. Many of these patients also achieved a stable disease or better. Um, there are about 20% uh, of so um, had progressive disease as um, best response. And then can we um, uh, combine these, right? So um, we saw the results of um, one of these combination cohorts, belzutifen, with cabozantinib, and we used two efficacious drugs in the refractory setting and enhanced their um, uh, benefit. Um, and here, belzutifen and um, cabozantinib had an objective response rate of about 31%, median progression-free survival almost 14 months, and a median overall survival about two years. And if you look at the waterfall plot, um, 87% of these patients had uh, disease control or better. And so um, certainly also an active and uh, uh, I think efficacious combination that has a lot of legs. So ongoing studies with uh, belzutifen, um, there's a phase three study called LifeSpark 005 um, that's randomizing uh, refractory uh, clear cell kidney cancer to either belzutifen or everolimus in the refractory setting. I believe this is fully enrolled and we're awaiting data. And then also LightSpark 011, um, this is also um, a refractory disease, um, uh, two or uh, fewer uh, previous lines of treatment randomized to belzutifen with limvatinib um, compared against cabozantinib. So certainly more data um, to help us understand the role of belzutifen in the refractory setting. 
Other combinations are ongoing as well. This is um, an interesting one that was presented at ASCO last year um, with um, axle inhibition, uh, the um, Aravif's um, uh, uh, molecule called Batyricept um, in combination with cabozantinib. Um, this schema is a bit um, uh, convoluted. It had a phase 1b portion with dose escalation and then also a cohort that had a combination with cabozantinib before it moved on to dose expansion cohorts in phase 2. Um, there was a refractory patient population in part A, um, a first-line patient population added to cabozantinib and nivolumab in part B, and then a monotherapy um, cohort in Part C. Um, what we're showing here um, was the Part A um, and the Phase 1B portion where um, uh, partial responses were seen, a 42%, as well as a seven-month um, progression-free survival rate of about 71%. So certainly some um, a, uh, an interesting um, uh, treatment molecule that um, is showing really promising results um, in the first-line and refractory settings. How about Cabo Point? Um, so this um, slide highlights data that we will um, see on uh, Saturday from Dr. Albiges and, and uh, the French team um, that took on patients with pretreated um, refractory renal cell carcinoma. Um, cohort A were uh, patients who had uh, progressed on uh, prior uh, IOIO combination, Ipinevo, and cohort B were patients who had prior VEGF IO combinations. Um, and so a very um, thoughtful study, 125 patients in each cohort. Um, uh, and their abstract, at least, um, uh, says that they had an objective response rate of about 29%. Um, so certainly cabozantinib in um, prior IO-treated populations is also active. So what about the refractory disease algorithm? How can we think through um, where patients, what patients had in frontline, and how can we sequence their treatment? So this um, guideline um, came from uh, an international cohort of um, uh, experts that I was uh, lucky to be part of um, through ASCO. Um, and so uh, Dr. Rathmel and Dr. Singer led this cohort um, of, uh, of um, people around the world, and we came up with what we thought were reasonable guidelines at the time. This might change in a couple months when some of these trials that I just told you um, uh, read out. But for the moment, um, these are some of our treatment recommendations. If they've had uh, VEGF TKI monotherapy following with nivolumab or cabozantinib, if they've had IOIO combinations, um, we're often following with a VEGF um, TKI monotherapy. And then if they've had VEGF IOs, um, then an alternative uh, VEGF TKI. And then if oligoprogression progression and immunotherapy, um, there was a cohort of radiation oncologists um, that strongly um, uh, thought we should consider local therapy based on several phase two studies that have read out in the last two years and continuing their um, baseline uh, immunotherapy. And I would add as an editorial comment that I think this does depend on first-line treatment and then their timing of resistance. So somebody who's resistant six months into their um, IOIO combination is, looks different than somebody who's responded and then two years, three years out um, is now having uh, acquired resistance. Um, I do think there's uh, much to be learned still um, uh, for these uh, immunotherapy-resistant populations and different mechanisms and, uh, and the, the paths forward for um, uh, further um, therapeutic development in the refractory setting.
So some key takeaways here, um, as uh, our more treatments options are available in the adjuvant and frontline settings, I do think that pr uh, treatment selection remains a key question in refractory disease, and this is a challenging um, situation where we're seeking we're sequencing more lines of treatment. Um, our frontline therapies and timing of progression are important considerations in the subsequent um, treatment choices. Tavazinib is the only TKI that's developed in the post-immunotherapy era, so those patients um, on TIVO3 um, there were patients um, who had had prior IO therapy. Lymvatinib pembrolizumab is the only published IOTKI combination to date. Um, and insight into second-line TKIs, I'm looking forward to Cabo Point um, on Saturday. And there are uh, multiple ongoing trials. We've highlighted a couple here, Pedigree, Contact 03, and TNEVO2, um, where when they write, read out, hopefully they'll also give us insights to treatment sequencing. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Monty. That was terrific, Tia. We've done this together a couple of times, but I learned something new every time I hear you give this presentation. That was terrific. Um, well, let me ask you guys something. So something that I've kind of uh, taken to doing recently is that if I start with Cabo Nevo in the frontline setting, which I, I probably do in the majority of my patients, you know, in the second line setting, you know, sometimes I get a little stumped. You know, I, I traditionally have gone with lenvatinib everolimus. Uh, but it's a tough regimen. You know, we've done some dose-finding studies there, haven't really a lot of, made a lot of headway in terms of managing some of the toxicities. So I've actually turned it to Vazinib, you know, particularly for patients that are frail. So Cabo-Nevo followed by Tavazinib. Thoughts on that, Tian? Is that reasonable, you think? or uh, It's a, as reasonable as we have so far. I think certainly Tavazinib is a good choice um, for patients who are um, uh, maybe frail, but also in the post-IO combinations, um, especially if you've used cabozantinib up front. Um, you know, I also like uh, Joe's data from Memorial for lenvatinib and pembrolizumab in that setting, um, again, depending on whether they've had a response or not in the upfront setting. Okay, so I'm going to dovetail on that. So you mentioned Len Pembro as sort of a salvage strategy. Dave, in your current sort of standard practice, are you sort of extending IO into the second, third line setting? Um, for many patients, we try it in the second line. In part, and we need data there. We, we may be over-treating those patients. I don't think we try it a third time. Um, but back to Tavozinib, as Tian was saying, I think one of the advantages of Tavozinib, it's a very, very potent VEGF inhibitor, probably the, one of the most potent we have. It's also cleaner than some of the other drugs we have, so it's less multi-targeted, which I think narrows the toxicity profile a little bit, which particularly as you get to second and third line is really important because patients are more beat up by what they've been through and, it, you know, it's harder to get full doses of drugs that have lots of side effects into those patients. Absolutely. You know, I promised I wouldn't do this, but Chuck, can I pick on you again with a question here? So, you know, we, we've talked about this concept of, you know, IO followed by IO. I mean, can you give us your sense of that? Is If a patient's progressed on a frontline TKI IO regimen or even Nevo-Ipi, is there good rationale to follow up with another immunotherapeutic afterwards? Well, I, I, think, I think the ongoing trials will tell us for sure. But it's an interesting parallel to think about um, breast cancer that is HER2 positive, right? And in those patients, studies have clearly shown that even when a patient progresses, you keep the HER2 backbone going, right? And maybe that's going to turn out with these PD-1 regimens. Maybe the LEN, um, uh, excuse me, the uh, Pembro-LEN data are, are actually true, right? That you should keep the PD-1 pressure on uh, in an ongoing sense, actually. I, I don't think we know, but I think it'll be interesting to find out. 
And, and this is a real zinger, if, you, if I can throw this one <laughs> at you. Me, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what about this concept of uh, switching from PD-1 targeting to PDL one targeting? Any, any rationale for that, or is it all the same? It's, a, it's like a long story. Um, but remember, the PD-1 um, agents, all the ones that are FDA approved, block both PDL one and PDL two, whereas the um, anti-PDL ones only block PDL one. So there's still PDL two pressure. Um, that's probably why the PDL one agents have less tox, but are slightly effective, less effective. I think switching from a PDL one to a PD one makes sense, but the other way, I'm not sure it makes as much sense. Very interesting. Okay. You know, that, Chuck that's... is making our jobs easier today. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, those figures would be directed at you. He's also <laughs> he's also going to be sharing your honorary as well. <laughs> no, no, that's no only worries. fair. That's only fair. Thank you so much, Chuck. That was super helpful. So, you know, I, I did have, you know, a question for you, Dave. I mean, I, I want you to take out your crystal ball for just a second. We, we could certainly dwell on this case, but I think it highlights a lot of these scenarios here. Um, I want you to take out your crystal ball, okay? Pretend you're Dave McDermott in 2026, okay? Um, so we've we've gotten the readout from the uh, the Belzutifan versus Everolimus study at that point in time. It's positive, surprise, surprise, you know, against Everolimus. Uh, and so now you have Belzutifan in your arsenal. So you see this patient, he's been on Nevo-Ipi in the frontline setting, progresses on, let's say, capazantinib as second-line therapy. You've got this option of going with tavazinib versus potentially belzutifan as third-line therapy. What are you going to pick there? Um, well, I think the VEGF refractory setting is probably a setting where belzutifan will not be awesome. You know, my sense is the patients who respond to VEGF blockade, the overlap between those Venn diagrams of HIF and VEGF, they're probably the same group of patients or a very similar group of patients. So, I, you know, I, I would imagine, I wouldn't be surprised, for example, if that randomized trial showed somewhat less activity of belsudafan in the, in the pivotal trial than we saw in the phase one, um, because of that. I think we as a, as a, uh, field need to figure out who benefits from HIF inhibition and who doesn't and try to move that single agent approach as early as possible. Cause I think that where it's going to work the best is early. It's going to work the best in good risk patients, for example, but it can only get there if we have selection tools. And we've not been very good at coming up with predictive biomarkers. I've certainly spent a lot of time flailing away at developing that. But it, in the case of HIF inhibition, that's targeting the tumor. And so as opposed to these other things, which are targeting the microenvironment. So we may be able to come up with a better more genomic marker for HIF response. And until, but until we do, I think our, it, it's more likely in that scenario, to come back to your question, that you're going to go VEGF, VEGF as a second line approach before you go to HIF based on what we're likely to see in the randomized data. Whereas if you, you could bring that drug early, people would use it more. And I think it would help the patients because in general, patients feel better, in my experience, on a HIF inhibitor than they do on a VEGF inhibitor from a quality of life point of view because the toxicity profile is unique and but more narrow. So, so let me ask you, and again, I'm going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball here. So there's All right. So many uh, pivotal trials ongoing right now with Belzutifan. We have the refractory study, TN, that you'd highlighted in the third line setting and beyond. We've got Len Belzutifan versus Cabo second line. We have the frontline trial. Then, of course, we've got adjuvant, pembrolizumab plus or minus Belzutifan as well. How, how far do you think Belzutifan will leapfrog ahead? Do you think we're going to see adjuvant uh, use down the line? Do you Dan, want you want to take that one? <laughs> 
it's certainly a good uh, commercial development to put Belzudafin in so many trials. Um, you know, I, it's an interesting prospect. So how many of those patients in the adjuvant setting need um, a HIF blockade? And is there mycomatostatic disease that's going to respond to that instead of to an IO therapy? Um, that's the question that um, is really being teased out um, with the new adjuvant trial 022. Um, and so, I, I, you know, crystal ball aside, I think, you know, multiple hits on target, one of these is going to pan out probably. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm usually wrong about this stuff. I'm quite optimistic about you know two two and you know its future. I mean, I, I do think that there's you know a fair number of patients in that you know adjuvant setting you know who at least you know in their primary tumor had some VEGF dependency. Um, you know, and I, I wonder, and Dave, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. With Belzufan, might there be less issues with dose intensity than we had with, for instance, adjuvant sinitinib and the VEGF inhibitors? Uh, based on what we know now. It's likely that it'll be more tolerable than those drugs in the adjuvant setting. That doesn't mean it's a better idea. Mm-hmm. So um, I personally would have insisted on a randomized trial in the metastatic setting before I launched an adjuvant trial if I was king of the world, but of course I'm not. So it, so it would be nice to know the question, the answer to the question, does HIF inhibition enhance the immune response, yes or no? And we don't know that yet in the metastatic setting, and we're about to launch an enormous, or we launched an enormous trial. I can imagine the benefit is additive in the adjuvant setting. I just, but what we all want is more than additive. We want to produce not just improved disease-free survival, but improved overall survival. And the only way we're going to see that, I think, is if HIF enhances PD-1. And we don't know that yet. We're going to have to wait for the trial. So if you saw in that setting, if you saw DFS but no OS, I'm not sure I would want to give that combo. We'll have to wait. Got it. Got it. Totally fair. And, and and a great point there, I mean, about sort of sequencing these trials and pushing into adjuvant, a potentially curative setting, only after we have efficacy data and later line therapy. I think that makes perfect sense. I think that makes perfect sense. So, you know, l- let me ch- divert from this scenario. I, frankly, I think the scenario is too easy. Uh, we've, we've been through t- scenarios like this in the past. I want to give you a scenario that I actually ran into in clinic that I, I think is, is a zinger, but a real-life zinger. So a patient progresses on adjuvant pembrolizumab. This is a third-line case, adjuvant pembrolizumab, during the course of therapy, started cabozantinib in this patient. They're progressing on cabozantinib now. What do you think should be that patient's third-line strategy there? Would you try to re-challenge with TKI plus IO? And they've progressed on cabozantinib after a, about a nine-month duration. Uh, Dave, what would you do in a scenario like that? So you're saying they're growing through cabo? They're going through cabo. After how long in cabo? Nine months. Nine months. Right. And this is after having progressed on pembrolizumab during the course of uh, uh, adjuvant therapy. Right. So this patient has a problem. And one of the things we need to be honest with patients like this is that, you know, there may not be anything more effective than what you've already tried in that scenario. I mean, I think there's a rationale for combinations in this patient, but it isn't enormous. I mean, we do tend to think that, for example, that VEGF PD-1 is better than VEGF. So trying an approach you haven't tried is reasonable in that setting of the VEGF PD-1 combo. But anyone who grows through PD-1 or grows through CABO in a short period of time, their survival is probably pretty short, and they need to know that and make sort of 
plans accordingly. Obviously, clinical trials are, are a good idea in that setting, if assuming their performance status is good. I mean, one of the things that you've explored that makes sense, I think, for patients who fail PD-1 is to explore, um, you know, CAR-T therapy and TIL therapy and these engineered T-cell approaches, which have been slow to be developed in kidney cancer. So a more aggressive approach in someone like that makes sense, but there aren't that many trials to point to that are taking that approach for our patients, at least at the moment. In other tumor types, they are, but not in our, not in kidney cancer. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Tian, what about you in this scenario? Patients progressing on adjuvant Pembro, then Cabo. Uh, you know, you, you outlined some great considerations, Dave. Let's assume no clinical trials are available. What would you challenge that patient with next? Yeah, I, I thought David's points were really well taken. Um, you know, from so it's been nine months since their past PD one. I I would think about um and uh, adding an IO agent. Um, I've actually had uh, patients progress through cabo monotherapy, nevo monotherapy, and then we say, well, there's we could do the combination um, as it was being approved, and um, it salvaged um one particular patient very well um, for another year of response. So, um, you know, it, it's. Uh, possible that there is some synergy. Um, I think Andrea Apollo has shown really nice correlative data on um, combining CABO with uh, NEVO. And so um, there could be some synergy there and we don't know. Um, so I, I think it's reasonable to try um, as we, if, if the patient's robust and well and able to t- uh, take more therapies. So Len with Avrolimus, Len with Pembro, maybe try CABO-NEVO. Um, uh, I don't give up quite yet. Excellent. Okay. I think that makes sense. Uh, We have a question coming through here, and I'm going to try to put it in the form of a case. So let's take this scenario here. Patient gets frontline nevo-ipi. It progresses on that, as stated here, after 15 months with new lung nodules, new nodularity in the liver. Uh, Patient starts on cabozantinib, initially has a partial response to therapy, but then starts very slowly progressing. So this patient starts developing one new lung nodule. Uh, it's real, though. You know, it measures around uh, two centimeters uh, when you first recognize it, then takes a little bit of an indolent course and grows to two and a half centimeters three months later. What would you do in that scenario for the patient? One new lesion popping up on imaging. Uh, Dave? Well, I, I don't think off study we react as quickly to that scenario as we might on study. So on, on study, patient has to move on to something else. But off study, you could treat that locally, potentially. Um, you could, you know, radiate it, ablate it, operate on it. It was truly the only thing growing and they were tolerating the therapy reasonably well. Uh, and you could potentially continue that arguing that you're controlling most of their disease with the current therapy. You could, of course, escalate, um, as Tian just described, with, with combinations, and there's a lot of good options too. But usually when people have isolated progression, I often try to treat them, you know, sort of treat the area that's the problem and try to keep, assuming they're tolerating therapy. If, if they're having more progression in more organs, multiple tumors, that's a different story. But isolated progression, I try to treat locally as opposed to systemically. And, and Tian, maybe tell us about your preferences in that scenario. I assume you have a similar perspective. I, I do too, Dave. Uh, but amongst those options, I think, you know, 10 years ago, I used to lean exclusively on surgery. Right. Uh, you know, nowadays, is radiation more in your armamentarium? Or are you still leaning on surgery in scenarios like this with oligoprogression? 
I think, you know, uh, dependent on the patient and functional status and whether they're able to go undergo surgery, um, it's certainly a viable option. Um, you know, our radiation oncologists are also pretty um, aggressive about um, SBRT, and um, we, I think we've come a long way with radiation. Um, and so uh, certainly considering radiation or ablation, if it's a liver lesion, um, would, uh, embolization uh, would all be uh, potential options. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. You know, I, I think this phenomenon of oligoprogression is such an interesting one. Is there any sort of line in the sand, you know, in terms of using surgery or radiation in these scenarios of oligoprogression? I mean, Dave, if we wanted to kind of give the audience here, you know, somewhat of a definition of oligoprogression versus, you know, frank progression otherwise, how would you put it? Um, so a single nodule, one organ system, you know, slow relative over time, as you described in this patient, patient's case, you know, asymptomatic. You know, patients who are symptomatic are a very different group of patients. They often can't afford a stoppage of therapy for surgery, for example. That's partly why we lean on some of these other local therapies much more than we used to. I mean, radiation, when I started this 100 years ago, radiation was not a thing we offered our kidney cancer patients. Now, the focused radiation that TM was talking about is actually very effective at individual lesions. So, you know, that's what we do. You sort of know it. Oligo, you sort of know it when you see it. Absolutely. No, that makes perfect sense. So, so Tian, you know, give me a sense of what you're excited about over the last couple of minutes here. What, what are you excited about that's on the horizon, you know, perhaps that we haven't focused on today? We talked about Bilzutafan. You brought up a couple of the novel drugs that are in pipeline as well. You know, if you have a patient out there who's, you know, sort of exhausted some of the available options, what, what are some of the early phase clinical trials that you're, uh, you're keen on? Uh, well, you know, there's, um, a lot of, um, uh, attention on, um, some of the stellar trials, for example. So, um, uh, I'm interested in those. Um, something, sometimes also some of the antibody drug conjugates and then also novel immunotherapeutics. Um, you know, there was a, um, phase one, uh, cohort that was presented by Laurence, um, at ASCO last year also with a bispecific, um, uh, targeting CTLA4 and PD1. And so that's potentially um, efficacious molecule, even in the refractory setting. So I'd love to see that um, further. And, and how about you, Dave? Stuff on the horizon? So we haven't been great at developing biomarkers from human specimens, but we are learning about new targets from human specimens in kidney cancer. So, for example, Tam was alluding to this, there are novel IO targets that are probably worth exploring. For example, LAG3 is, is one of those. Um, it's already shown to be effective adding it to PD-1 in melanoma. It makes good sense to try it. Um, in kidney cancer, there are novel forms of CTLA-4 that were presented at, at the SITSI meeting, which are showing activity in combination with PD-1 in non-mutated colon cancer, which suggests, you know, maybe they might offer something more than we see with IPI. Um, we, we mentioned some of the cellular therapies. Those are going to be harder, uh, probably, to develop. Um, than others, but there's a there's a lot to do. But I think a lot to test. But I think as a field, what we need to start doing with our patients is if we, once they get to a certain point where we no longer have therapies that can prove survival, we still need to be offering them these these trials because that's the only way we're going to make 
progress. That, that's such a fantastic point. And a lot of the, you know, sort of uh, younger companies that I'm working with as we're designing eligibility, you know, what I'm really trying to reinforce is that, you know, after you progress on a TKI IO regimen right now, there's really no obvious standard of care. And right. if a patient has, you know, reasonably slowly progressive disease, it might be a good interval to, you know, try something rational in the context of a phase one clinical right. trial. If I could put a plug in, um, in those refractory trials, I always um, uh, say not to limit the number of lines of prior therapies. Um, I think your CAR T cell that you um, presented at SITSI was um, particularly illustrative. Um, some of those patients, 10 years since their diagnosis, and they'd had multiple lines of prior therapies. And so if they're fit and functional and well enough to go on trial, um, by all means, let's enroll those patients. Absolutely. This CAR-T phenomenon to me is just uh, so amazing. I mean, we, we've heard about it for a long time with CD19 targeting CAR-T and, you know, lymphoma. We've heard about BCMA in the context of myeloma. Um, and, you know, I think that honing in on a specific antigen in renal cell carcinoma never really seemed like a possibility. Um, but, you know, we, we just presented the data from a CRISPR's uh, CAR-T cell CTX-130 last year. We had one durable complete response, not a home run, just one patient out of 11 that we reported in the series um, but more recently, we had a press release out from Allergene's uh, CD70 uh, CAR T cell as well. And there, you know, three out of nine patients that were CD70 expressing had responses. So there's some, some hope on the horizon there. Um, and we have a couple of really good questions we're going to wrap up with from the audience over here. Dave, you brought up uh, Mike Atkins' presentation on Saturday in the context of uh, the GU16 trial. And, you know, one of the interesting tenets of that study is it actually starts patients in the frontline setting on single-agent nivolumab. Um, question from the audience, a very reasonable one, actually, is are there settings in which you just use IO monotherapy frontline these days? Uh, Dave, uh, do you, you want to... Yes. So a patient who's asymptomatic, who may be a little frail or a little bit hesitant to take on the added risk of CTLA-4, we often start with PD-1. That concept came, at least in part, I also take care of melanoma. That's been pretty well established in melanoma as an effective approach, maybe less so in kidney cancer. Um, but the data in melanoma is pretty good that you can add CTLA-4 later in, in patients. So that's what, that's when we do it if either we're hesitant or they're hesitant to get IPI. Yeah. yeah. And what about UTN, single-agent IO? Uh, uh, very rare uh, in my practice to do single-agent IO. Um, you know, the 427 data um, is that there, so we, we could, um, but um, I, I don't um, often give it. Yeah. I'm going to try to take a stab at this last question. We'll unfortunately have to wrap up. There's lots of... Uh, terrific questions, I think, that we've addressed today. Uh, some good targets for targeted therapy in RCC. I know we've always talked about VEGF and so forth. I'm excited about CD70 on the basis of some of these CAR-T trials. We have some bispecific therapies now in pipeline directed against ENPP3, which is actually a very renal cell-specific antigen as well. It's come up on multiple screens. Uh, CA9 might be making a resurgence. You know, Brian Shuck's going to present some uh, radiology data on Saturday looking at uh, CA9-based imaging. That's not new necessarily, but the technology seems to be quite honed and maybe there's some potential for radio pharmaceuticals. So I, I really do feel that the future is bright. And with that, um, I'd like to thank the audience for their attention and thank you to Tian and Dave for a, a terrific session once again today. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, 
the Kidney Cancer Research Alliance. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash FFQ 860. This educational activity is supported through medical education grants from Avio Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Exelixis Incorporated.